Before we begin, you should know that this episode contains sound from a violent encounter with police. How have you been? Good. I'm just waiting for a uh, mental health team. Oh, perfect. Awesome. What time is that scheduled for? Uh, one o'clock. Uh, so we're working on uh, medication monitoring. Sergeant Eric Piskonski of the Seattle Police Department was working his beat on a rainy fall afternoon. He stopped at an apartment building where people with mental illness live to check in on a man named Tim. Tim and his court-appointed counselors had developed a new plan to help his mental health. It involved making sure he took his medication by coordinating with a local pharmacy. And Tim, do you think that'll be beneficial, getting the pharmacy involved? Yeah. Okay. When I'm depressed, I have suicidal feelings like every day, so I'm using this now. I'm not using any crisis line anymore. Okay. Um, Does that seem to be working out for you? Eric heads a special unit that focuses on people in mental crisis. He was making the rounds with the team's mental health professional, Mariah Andrignes. All right. Well, good luck in court. Keep taking care of yourself, okay? I know it's hard to take your meds, but try real hard. All right? All right, thank you. Yeah, right. One of our regulars, in case you couldn't tell. Inside his patrol car, the sergeant told my colleague Brian Howie a little more about Tim. We've been familiar with Tim for the last few years, and his behavior has been declining um, steadily and becoming more concerning uh, to the to the point that. Over the last year or so, he has attempted multiple suicide by cop encounters. He can't legally obtain a, uh, a firearm, but he has gone out and um, obtained very realistic replica <laughs> airsoft firearms and has, you know, attempted to prompt multiple officer-involved shootings. And just through various circumstances, he has uh, not ended up getting shot by police. So, I mean, what happened in those situations? How were the officers able to resolve that? Uh, Through what I believe was just a phenomenal job of de-escalation. Of course, the rub there is that, well, he might have shown up on multiple occasions with a replica firearm, you don't know when it's going to be a real firearm. You're probably not going to find too many cops are going to risk their life on what was fake last time, so it's probably fake this time. As California debated a new law limiting when police can use deadly force, Advocates pointed to Seattle as an example of a place that had benefited from a similar policy. The Seattle Police Department has made a lot of changes in recent years, and its use of force is way down. So we went to Seattle to see what that city's experience can help us understand about California's future, as the most populous state adapts to new laws that require more de-escalation training and limits on when police can shoot. That's what we'll focus on for this final episode of Season 1 of Force of Law, a podcast about police shootings and California's attempt to do something about them. I'm your host, Laurel Rosenhall.
One of my takeaways from our research in Seattle is that some people in California may have unrealistically high hopes for how many lives the new laws here will save. When I interviewed Governor Gavin Newsom a few days after he signed California's new deadly force law, I asked him how he'll judge whether it's successful. Substantial reduction in the number of fatal shootings. We've had over 275 fatal shootings the last two years. Um, and we need to see significant improvement uh, in the number of these instances. But not only fatal shootings, but shootings more broadly defined, and we need to track that, and we need to, uh, I think, see some demonstrable reduction. Ultimately, that will be the foundational judge of whether or not this was a successful effort. And so do you have, like, a number you're hoping for? No, I think that would be foolhardy of me. I mean, we want zero. That's the number. I mean, that's the, the goal. Um, but no one's naive, and there are completely justifiable instances uh, where uh, that use of force is appropriate. That, of course, uh, will occur. Police shootings still happen in Seattle, and no officer has faced criminal prosecution in the seven years since that department's reforms began. On the other hand, Seattle's experience suggests that law enforcement agencies can change in ways that make the public safer without putting officers in greater danger. This is ACLU lawyer Peter Babring, who pushed for the new California law, known as AB 392. Seattle poses a similar standard to the necessary standard of AB 392, and so provides a pretty good indication of what we can expect. And there are significant uses of force by police, mid-level and deadly force, dropped significantly by approximately 60% in the first 24 months without any indication that officers were reluctant to do their job or uh, were at greater risk. And in fact, there was no increase in crime or no increase in injuries to officers during that period. I'll tell you more about how people in Seattle feel about the changes in the police department in just a bit. But first, a little background on what led up to the department's decision in 2012 to change the way officers use force. Here's how some key Seattle residents, a former city councilman, a reform advocate, and a police officer, explain what was going on. There were a series of specific incidents that caused people to question, are we getting the kind of police services that we want? They were alarmed at some of these incidents they were seeing. There was a young girl who got punched by a police officer. Another undercover gang unit detective was stopping strong-arm robbery suspects, and he was caught using a derogatory slur. And then John T. Williams. There was an individual who was a regular kind of in our downtown area. His name was John T. Williams. He used to carve wood, had a knife. Well, there was a new officer who was working the downtown area and saw a man with a knife. The officer feared for his life, fired, and killed him. Fed up with what they saw as abuse by the police, a coalition of Seattle groups asked the federal government to review the department. This was during Barack Obama's presidency, when the Federal Department of Justice investigated misconduct claims in police departments around the country. In 2011, there were findings by the DOJ after about a year-long investigation that the police department engaged in unconstitutional use of force. Approximately one out of every five or four times force was used. This is Mike Carter, a veteran Seattle Times reporter who covers criminal justice. They reviewed hundreds and hundreds of cases and determined that excessive force was used routinely by the police department. 
Seattle officials did not agree, but they decided to settle with the feds by entering what's called a consent decree. It's basically a legal agreement that spells out a bunch of ways the police department will change. In this case, the Seattle police agreed to use more de-escalation and less force, to create policies for when officers should use each type of weapon, to establish a community police commission, and launch a much more detailed system for tracking which officers use which types of force. Mike says a federal judge oversees the whole thing, and a team of monitors tracks the results of all the changes. The idea was they would hopefully last about five years, and they would be able to reconfigure the department in such a way as to bring it into compliance. Well, it hasn't been five years. It's now been closer to seven years, and uh, the department is very close to getting out from underneath the consent decree. Let's pause here to acknowledge that California and Seattle are very different. Seattle is a city of 750,000 people and one police department. Nearly 40 million people live in California, a state with more than 600 law enforcement agencies. A court ordered the changes in Seattle, while the legislature drafted the changes that are coming in California. But both policies carry the force of law. And experts say Seattle's experience is relevant to many California cities. If I were talking to a police chief right now in, in California, I might say, well, read the Seattle report, uh, read the statistics. You may say that you're doing a lot of the things anyway, but there is be certain things that are in the, in the Seattle program that you don't have. And uh, it looks like a pretty good model. Robert Weisberg is a Stanford Law School professor and co-director of its Criminal Justice Center. California's got massive cities, cities that are of about the same size and complexity of Seattle, most obviously San Francisco, San Jose, uh, San Diego, Oakland. Every city is different, but, you know, these cities are kind of like each other. They're very urban, they're reasonably large, they have significant diversity of population, they've all had problems with police. So in that sense, Seattle is, it's not quite apples to apples, but apples to pears as opposed to oranges. For the rest of this episode, we're going to examine what changed in Seattle and what didn't. First by looking at the improvements and then at the remaining challenges. My name is Reverend Harriet Walden and I'm the founder of Mothers for Police Accountability and I'm one of the co-chairs of the Community Police Commission. I met up with Harriet at her office in a Seattle neighborhood she said had gentrified a lot since she first started pushing for changes at the police department. Almost 30 years ago, my kids got beat up, and I started an organization. At that time, it was called Mothers Against Police Harassment, because that mainly what was was going on was a lot of harassment of young people. Her group signed on to the letter asking the Obama administration to investigate the Seattle Police Department. After it entered the consent decree, she joined the commission tasked with creating strategies to reform the department. She sees two big benefits in what the consent decree has achieved. It's forced activists and police officials to work together. And it's vastly improved police record keeping. It's still not the case in America that uh, all use of force have to be reported. I mean, in the past and in some jurisdictions, it's still an officer can point a gun at you and never have to report that. Unless the individual uh, uh, makes a complaint, then there is no record of that in a lot of places. 
that changed here significantly in Seattle. The department started tracking every use of force, not just shootings. It tracks low-level incidents, like causing pain to someone's wrist while handcuffing them, along with higher levels of force that could cause bruising or broken bones and might involve batons or pepper spray or tasers. The department, up until the consent decree, really didn't track the use of force. I mean, an officer would have to check a box on a report, and that was about the extent of it. Um, The definition of use of force was very loosey-goosey. This is Mike Carter again, the Seattle Times reporter. Now, if you draw your gun and point it at somebody, you have to report that. That wasn't the case for a long time. It's pretty amazing. It really is. It's very, very different. I mean, just night and day. The consent decree also required more training for Seattle police officers on each weapon they carry and on methods to reduce their use of force by de-escalating confrontations. It called for new strategies to help officers respond to people in mental crisis, and it expanded a lot of department policies. It has been radically changed by, uh, by the court and the, and the monitor appointed by the court. Top to bottom, things have changed. Use of force is down. Officer injuries are not up. Crime has stayed fairly stable. Seattle police already had the word necessary in their use of force policy. But the policy got a lot more detailed under the consent decree. It says officers can only use the amount of force that is reasonable, necessary, and proportionate to bring a situation under control while protecting the lives of officers and others. That makes it similar to the new California law that says officers can only use deadly force when necessary in defense of human life. What Seattle holds itself out to be is the 21st Century Police Department. It is held up as the standard often around the country as this is the direction things are going. This is a professional department. This is the kind of scene Eric and Mariah encounter as part of Seattle's crisis response team. Those are the officers who specialize in helping people with mental illness. The team existed before the consent decree, but the department's given it a higher priority and a bigger budget under court supervision. The monitors who review Seattle police have found that in general, they've gotten a lot better at de-escalating situations involving people in mental crisis. So while he's in jail, they'll do a mental health evaluation of him and, and that will dictate what happens next. Many of the larger police departments in California also have crisis response teams. But more California officers are going to get that kind of training because of two new state laws. One of them that police pushed for requires training on de-escalation and mental health. The other one says officers can only use deadly force when necessary. That prompted a big debate in California over whether the new necessary standard would put officers at greater risk. I understand their their concerns of of safety. We all have those concerns of safety. Um, And not wanting to be put into a situation where we're feeling like we have to hesitate in our decision to use force when we know it's reasonable, necessary, and in our case, proportional. But Eric said Um, California officers shouldn't worry about the word necessary. Um, You know, reasonable and necessary has been part of the Washington state law for use of force and deadly force 
um, for a long time. And I don't think that inherently it has made us unsafe because of that. Uh, I don't think that officers are getting uh, injured, harmed, assaulted, or killed just because necessary is in our use of force guidelines in our law. I talked with another sergeant who said the consent decree embarrassed the department, but created more transparency. My name is James Kim. I'm a sergeant with the Seattle Police Department's Education and Training Section. The reaction to the, the consent decree was, was not, wow, we're under a consent decree. That's not a proud moment for me in my career. I was a use of force trainer before the consent decree, right? It's kind of getting past it about, are we a better department because of it? I think we are. Supervisors now review every use of force, and trainers like James develop lessons to help officers learn from their colleagues' mistakes. We're not necessarily saying discipline, but definitely training, refocus, and sitting back and looking back and reflecting on what they did. How do we make this better? I mean, that's, that's the end goal of all this training. We can't train every situation. We're trying to make it better for next time. He thinks more than policy changes led Seattle police to reduce their use of force. Collecting the data and creating a chain of command to review it plays a big role, too. I think the consent decree held us accountable for making sure we're de-escalating, right, because that's part of our review process. The officers are going to have to articulate what steps they did to de-escalate, and if they didn't, why it wasn't feasible, right? And they're going to be held through that review process, accountable for that, and the command is going to be uh, accountable for ensuring that review process took place. James says that process, along with an emphasis on de-escalation and promoting teamwork among officers, has helped reshape the culture of policing in Seattle. Before, it would just be kind of a brawl, like I hate to say it. Now we're using coordinated tactics where they're less injurious to the suspect and less injurious to the officer. So we're moving the needle. Harriet Walden, the activist you heard from earlier, tends to agree, even as she maintains that the consent decree hasn't solved all the problems between Seattle police and communities of color. It's not nirvana, so let's, let's be real. But it has had an impact. She wants people to recognize how much. And this is a lot different than it was 30 years ago. We weren't even on the road. Wasn't nobody talking about use of force. I mean, wasn't anybody talking about uh, bias and all of that stuff. Nobody was talking about that. It was it was standard police procedure, and it was nothing you could do about it. So, in the generation, we have moved the needle. Now I want to tell you about the challenges Seattle's experienced as it's worked to change the culture of its police department. Although officers are using serious levels of force a lot less than they used to, with significant drops in their use of batons and tasers, some problems persist. Police are still more likely to use force on people of color than on white residents of Seattle, the court-appointed monitors found. Five years into the consent decree, the city erupted in protest after police killed a pregnant African-American woman in her own home. More information tonight about the officers and the woman who was killed, Charlena Lyles. 911, what's your emergency? By now, you probably know the story. I would like to report a break-in. Lyles, who is African-American, called police. Have an officer come to my house. The Seattle Police Department released an audio clip of the shooting. Two white officers responded. Yes. I was officer in Seattle Police Department. Lyle suffered from mental health issues. So this gal 
She was the one making all these weird statements about how her and her daughter are going to turn into wolves. It's clear that the officers knew going in there that there was an incident there previously. She started talking all crazy about how she, the officers weren't going to leave and she had a giant pair of scissors. While the two officers were in her home investigating, said an was taken. they say Lyles confronted them with a knife. The officers did not have tasers and are not required to carry them. Lyles grew agitated and lunged at them. Hey, get back! Get back! Get back! Before she was shot and killed. Charlena Lyles was 30 years old. Three of her four children were in the apartment when police killed her. That's probably one of the worst days of my entire life. And I will never be the same person. It's etched into my mind forever. This is Charlena's cousin, Katrina Johnson. She remembers racing to her cousin's house after hearing that she had died. I'm thinking it was some domestic violence situation. And it wasn't until I got there that I found out that the police had actually killed my cousin. And um, it was unbelievable because in that instant, I realized that I was one of those people that I see on TV when you start talking about Freddie Gray and Sandra Bland and all those other individuals who have lost their loved ones to the police use of deadly force. And you never think that it's going to happen to you. And it happened. The police department's investigation determined that the officers were justified in shooting Charlena because she pulled a knife on them after they entered her apartment. Katrina just doesn't accept that. I believe that there is something different that could have been done. There is some sort of de-escalation that could have transpired. I asked Katrina what she thought of the fact that advocates in California regard the Seattle Police Department's use of force policy as a model. <laughs> um, I, I'm at a loss for words, actually. I don't really know how I feel about that. Part of me feels like, oh, that's good. But then I wonder, are we really the model when we still have things to work on? I'm not sure it sits well with me at all, to be perfectly honest. And that's not to say that there aren't officers out there um, doing a great job, but I, I, don't, I don't necessarily feel that um, Washington State is leading the way in corrective action as far as uh, police use of force. Katrina channeled her grief and frustration into campaigning for a ballot initiative to change policing across Washington State. Voters passed it in 2018. The measure requires independent investigations of police shootings, so law enforcement agencies will no longer investigate their own officers. And the initiative removed an unusual provision in Washington state law that made it almost impossible to file criminal charges against officers. The new law took effect this summer. A common criticism I heard about the Seattle Consent Decree is that the new system still doesn't hold officers accountable. There have been some very controversial officer-involved shootings. They have been found to be in compliance with department policy. Um, and they're being 
handled now through civil lawsuits, civil rights lawsuits. I think that there's a feeling still out there among the, you know, in the public that that cops can still get away with stuff. This is Seattle Times reporter Mike Carter again. When an officer is found to have violated department policies and or the law, it has been difficult for the police chief to impose sanctions. That's one reason the Seattle Police Department hasn't yet gotten out of the consent decree. The judge who's overseeing it said the contract between the city and the police officers union is basically too lenient because it allows an appeal process for officers who've been disciplined or fired. There was an attempt to fire an officer who punched a handcuffed suspect and and fractured her cheek, a, a young woman who was intoxicated, and he was trying to get her into the police car and she wasn't cooperating, and he slugged her in the face. And the chief tried to fire this particular officer's name's Adley Shepard, and uh, he took it to arbitration and they reinstated him. That case was the case that the judge pointed to in saying there are serious issues with accountability. Harriet Walden says officer accountability has been the biggest obstacle to changing the police department. Police reform is about you have to be in the weeds because if the officer is not trained to the policy, there would be no discipline. If the policy is not updated, there would be no discipline. Her message to Californians who are concerned about police accountability? Don't assume that this change in state law will be enough. Pay attention to the contracts cities form with their police unions. Every citizen needs to be in the weeds about police reform. If you're going to save so-called democracy, uh, you need to start saving it on a local level. And part of that is being awake and being aware and showing up. I think the way in which the consent decree has played out in Seattle has been a massive missed opportunity. Lisa Dugard is an attorney who runs a nonprofit public defender office. She served on the Community Police Commission for several years. A lot of what was accomplished through the consent decree was just stuff that somebody on high in the Justice Department decided was the answer or it was not generated out of real um, current problems and solutions that were experienced by people who are in the work, either from the police side or the community civil rights side. And because those two pieces had found a way to talk to one another, I think it was a real missed opportunity. Lisa also sees another weakness. Though the data show police are using weapons like batons and tasers a lot less, she hasn't seen a similar drop in fatal shootings. The fact is that there have been as many, I think, as many concerning uses of deadly force in the aftermath of the consent decree as there were before. And the community questions about whether those were avoidable are just as alive and just as valid as before the consent decree. This is hard to measure because before the consent decree, the department's data collection was shoddy. The Seattle Times reports that since 2015, Police shootings in this city have killed two or three people each year. Accounting for population differences, that makes the rate of fatal police shootings in Seattle lower than in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Sacramento, and San Jose, based on our analysis of Washington Post data on those cities. I think the department gets a ton of credit 
for innovation, openness to um, partnership, uh, sensitivity to community concerns. But on this one question about deadly force, I would be hard-pressed to say that something definitive has changed. And that probably speaks to who holds the reins of the oversight and investigative processes pertaining to deadly force. It isn't just activists like Lisa who criticize the consent decree. Some police officers say it's been bad for them, too. Officers are just like, you know what? I don't feel supported. Rich O'Neill is a spokesman for the Seattle Police Officers Union. There are officers who feel that they're not allowed to do police work. They're not allowed to do what they believe they were hired on to do, and that was to enforce the law. He worked for the Seattle Police Department for 38 years and has held union leadership positions for more than a decade. I do believe it's made the job more difficult. In some cases, it's made the job more dangerous. Officers are hesitating in certain circumstances where they shouldn't be. Sergeant Brian Kraus, who patrols downtown Seattle by bike, said he sees that happening too. With some officers, I think they will not use proportionate force. They don't use enough force when enough force is needed. And so they will um, allow themselves to be hit. And even if they're hit, they don't respond appropriately. And I think in the back of their mind, I think there's officers that are real worried that you're going to become the center of media attention based on one decision. The consent decree has placed the department under tremendous scrutiny. And these officers say that's made some of their colleagues quit. They don't believe that they can do police work. And they want to go somewhere that they feel that the city government's going to support them. We are in a staffing crisis. We're not retaining officers who are jumping ship to go to other uh, agencies. And that never happened in Seattle. We're losing valuable officers. As I prepared to end this series following the making of a new California law, I caught up again with Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, who'd put so much of her own identity into carrying this bill through the legislature. When Governor Newsom signed it into law in August, Weber's five- and seven-year-old grandsons stood on the stage beside him. Yeah, you two are in the front, on both sides. I need you right there. Yeah, there you go. I want That's important. In our phone call, the assemblywoman told me she'd asked the governor to put her grandsons up there because to her, the law represents a generational shift. This is really about their future so that I don't have to explain to them in great detail what my mother's explained to my brothers and what I had to explain to my son and what my grandfather had been doing himself. I asked if that means she or her daughter won't have that conversation with the boys as they grow older. We may have to. Uh, I'm not saying this bill is going to end all that, no. But I hope if I have that conversation, I have it with an understanding that there will be some justice for them. Also on the stage when Newsom signed the bill was the family of Stefan Clark, whose death in 2018 inspired it. He was in his grandparents' backyard when Sacramento police mistook the cell phone he was holding for a gun and shot him. 
the officers were cleared of wrongdoing, and the city agreed to pay $2.4 million to Stefan's two sons. Assemblyman Kevin McCarty introduced the family at the bill signing ceremony. We have one family here today, the Clark family, that brought this issue across our nation and across our globe. So it was an unjust shooting, an unjust killing. We could never take his life back. But the Clark family was committed to make sure he didn't die in vain and to fight for this measure. So I want to recognize the family here today, Stefante Clark, brother of Stefan Clark, Sequet Clark, mother of Stefan Clark, Sequita Thompson, grandma, Curtis Gordon, uncle, Selena Mani, the children Aiden and Cairo Clark, and Raj Mani, the grandfather. Laws California passed this year are one element of a bigger reckoning underway across America. It began a decade ago, when cell phone cameras and social media helped focus more attention on police shootings and their disproportionate toll on African Americans. We've seen massive street demonstrations and a new chapter in the civil rights movement calling out the historical ties between police and slavery. The Obama administration entered consent decrees with more than a dozen police departments in an attempt to correct patterns of misconduct. The Seattle example indicates the promise and the pitfalls of working to reduce police use of force. After seven years, it's still messy and imperfect. And maybe that's the best lesson for California. Changing a law is just the beginning of a transition that California will likely grapple with for many years to come. You're listening to Force of Law, a production of Cal Matters and Studio To Be. I'm your host, Laurel Rosenhall. Brian Howey is our producer and helped with a lot of reporting on this episode. Cheryl Duvall is our editor. Ray Ortega engineered this episode. Robbie Short is our researcher. David Lesher of CalMatters and Joaquin Alvarado and Kristen Belden of Studio To Be are the executive producers. You heard music by Lee Rosevere and Remember the Future. Thank you to Chloe Behrens and Zach Moreno from Squadcast.